The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more details on Anchorlight's many artistic and creative offerings, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. It's hard to name any other artist whose life was so scandalous as that of Caravaggio's. We've spoken a bit about Michelangelo Marisi de Caravaggio, known simply to many of us as Caravaggio, in previous episodes of the Art Curious podcast, and we've talked about him with good reason. The Italian painter was revolutionary in his dramatic artistic style, but he also had a dark side. Caravaggio's life was full of anger, lust, and violence. Many remember Caravaggio the artist for his incredible naturalism, his stark use of lighting, and a fascination with the most dramatic elements of a story, which he then translated seamlessly into paintings that are still greatly admired today. Caravaggio the man, on the other hand, has been remembered as violent, boastful, and angry, often carrying personal weapons without a permit. And it comes as little surprise then that Caravaggio, in a heated brawl, killed a man in 1606 and was forced to flee his home of Rome. His days in exile would not last long, though, as Caravaggio died just a few years later in 1610. But people have sometimes commented on the strange nature of Caravaggio's death, leading to a big question, fittingly dramatic for such a dramatic artist and man. We know Caravaggio was a murderer, but was he himself murdered? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In season six, we are uncovering the dastardly deeds of several of art history's famed artists, including their involvement or participation in Murder Most Foul. In today's episode, it's the odd circumstances surrounding Caravaggio's death. What caused it? and how might it link directly to his own experience as a murderer. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Born September 28, 1571, Caravaggio lived a tumultuous early life, which we discussed in episode 47 about his painting, Young Sick Bacchus. Caravaggio was apparently scrappy at an early age. Much of that scrappiness was out of necessity. Though not much is known about his childhood, we do know that when he was only six years old, the bubonic plague hit his hometown and killed nearly everyone in his family, including his father, with whom he was very close. As writer Andrew Graham Dixon noted in his 2011 biography, Caravaggio, A Life Sacred and Profane, this was the formative moment of his life, the traumatic event that shaped his future. The loss of his father caused him to act out and to sabotage opportunities throughout his life, regardless of how good these moments could be for him. As Graham Dixon writes, quote, It's almost like he cannot avoid transgressing. As soon as he's welcomed by authority, welcomed by the Pope, welcomed by the Knights of Malta, he has to do something to screw it up. It's almost like a fatal flaw, unquote. Orphaned and penniless, Caravaggio took up with a group of painters and lived on the streets, doing what he could to make a living for himself. When he was 11 years old, Caravaggio moved to Milan and began a four-year apprenticeship under the painter Simone Pedrizzano, where he would have been able to become very familiar with the artistic treasures of Milan and the regional Lombard style of art, which favored a more natural form and simplicity. 
fast-forwarding a few years, and we find our man Caravaggio making another move. This time, in 1592, at the age of 21, he left Milan for Rome. Now, the reasons for this relocation are a bit fuzzy, as most things in Caravaggio's biography are. Many have mused that he ended up wounding a Milanese police officer, which certainly tracks with what we know about the artist's infamous violent streak. But Rome ended up being a good thing for Caravaggio, because it was there that this troubled artist would really make a name for himself, eventually becoming the most famous painter in Rome for a brief period. The city was desperate for new paintings to fill the many churches and palazzos that were being built at the time, and they needed a stylistic alternative to mannerism. That late Renaissance style that featured exaggerated proportions and this grandiose sense of artifice. It was Caravaggio's use of tenebrism, his theatrical use of light and dark, as well as his attention to detail and high level of naturalism that set him apart from the rest and skyrocketed him to the forefront of the art world. A great example is the commission that Caravaggio scored in 1599 for the Contarelli Chapel. After years as a struggling artist, Caravaggio was contracted to decorate the chapel and produce two works, The Martyrdom of St. Matthew and The Calling of St. Matthew. Caravaggio painted these religious scenes with a supreme sense of drama and heightened with naturalistic details and modern contemporaneous clothes as if these scenes from the life of St. Matthew were taking place on the streets of Rome during his own time, instead of some far-off past. The impact that this made on the contemporary viewer can't be understated. It created a heavily emotional impact that allowed viewers to feel as if they were part of the scene, like St. Matthew could be just like them, or could even be them. And the Matthew pieces also left a dramatic impact for Caravaggio, too because his successes here guaranteed a steady flow of work for the painter from then on. Although Caravaggio's paintings were moving and highly successful, they weren't without their controversy. One of his most famous scandals was his use of a sex worker as a model for his painting in The Death of the Virgin, a picture of the death of the Virgin Mary meant for inclusion, where else, in a church. So I bet that you can imagine that when Caravaggio's model and her profession were discovered by the church patron, it didn't really go over so well. And the controversy in Caravaggio's paintings translated into his private life too. Indeed, it just seemed like they always spilled over into one another. Caravaggio had a short temper and was known to be a heavy drinker and gambler, and any combination of these elements could lead into trouble with the authorities on any given night or day. Much of what little we do know about Caravaggio's tumultuous life has been gleaned by researchers and art historians via the police logs and court documents of his time. Example number one. He would often roam about town carrying a dagger, sword, or even a pistol without a written permit to carry, which was, of course, against the law. And he was often fined and written up for such transgressions, and this was the minor end of things. He was also involved in many a street brawl, sometimes even brawling with the police themselves. And his temper even went as far as inspiring him to throw a plate of artichokes that were supposedly cooked incorrectly into the face of a waiter in a tavern and also pelting his landlady's windows with stones after she filed a lawsuit against him for cutting a hole in the ceiling of the studio he rented from her in order to fit his huge paintings inside. Okay, to be fair, this sort of boorish behavior was rather common for a man in Rome at this time, although Caravaggio may have indulged in this violence a little bit more than others. 
In a society where honor was everything, violence was common as a method to avenge someone's pride and to restore their good name. And Caravaggio was cocky about his actions and justifications for said actions because his work brought him in close proximity to the wealthiest and most powerful in Rome. So, in short, he must have believed that he could get away with things because his patrons could game the system and have his back. But that wasn't to be the case, and the artist's most violent act would lead to the declaration of a death sentence by Pope Paul V and force Caravaggio into exile for the remainder of his life. That's coming up next, right after this break. Stay with us. We all deserve to be able to further our knowledge, to keep learning. And that's what The Great Courses Plus is all about. And if you listen to Art Curious in the past, you know that I love this streaming service. The Great Courses Plus was founded on the idea that education should be accessible to everyone. So they make it possible to learn from the brightest minds out there. The kinds of amazing people that most of us would never otherwise have access to. Like professors from some of the best universities in the world. And experts from National Geographic and the Smithsonian. With The Great Courses Plus, you get college-level learning, but without student loans or pressure of homework or those dreaded final papers and projects. And better yet, no grades. You're learning just for the sake of learning, just for fun. And The Great Courses Plus app makes it possible for you to learn whichever way makes it most fun and easiest for you. You can watch or listen to lectures anytime. Right now, I recommend that you check out their course called A History of European Art. This course is a comprehensive look at European art from the beginning of the Middle Ages and coming into the late 20th century, inspiring viewers to cultivate an understanding of art history as a whole and inspiring a look at art throughout time. For example, I loved learning how Michelangelo inspired Rodin, who in turn was a big inspiration to some of the minimalist sculptors of the 20th century who followed in his wake. Expand your mind. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus. Right now and for a limited time only, my listeners can get an entire month for free. Get started today by signing up through my exclusive URL. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Backblaze is cloud storage that's astonishingly easy and low cost. It's unlimited computer backup for both Macs and PCs with no gimmicks or add-ons or gotchas for just $6 a month. With Backblaze, you can back up all your documents, music, photos, videos, drawings, projects, all of your data. And plus, you can restore files anywhere, either directly download them off the website or restore by mail by purchasing a restore via hard drive, which will then be sent to you via overnight FedEx. After you restore, you can then return the hard drive within 30 days to Backblaze for a full refund. Backblaze also has mobile apps so that you are able to access your files on the go and from anywhere in the world. To date, there have been over 40 billion files restored through Backblaze, and you can get in on this access. Join in for a free, fully featured trial at backblaze.com artcurious. You can go there, play with it, and start protecting yourself from potential bad times today. 
Visit backblaze.com slash artcurious to receive a fully featured 15-day free trial and support our show at the same time. Seriously, back your stuff up. Go to backblaze.com slash artcurious. There is a gorgeous naturally occurring gemstone that is so rare that there's not enough of it on the planet to actually use it to craft a single piece of jewelry. What is this incredible substance? It's moissanite, the world's most brilliant gem and one of its rarest minerals. So rare that it has to be made rather than mined. So that's where Charles and Colbert comes in. They have been creating and perfecting moissanite for over 20 years, forming a revolutionary stone that is unrivaled for its brilliance, durability, cut, color, and clarity, all at a value that is unparalleled. And it is ethically sound, as well as a happy fit for the planet, with 95% of the precious metals used in their jewelry being recycled. Charles and Colvard created gems are the pinnacle of moissanite, with their brand Forever One being unparalleled in the marketplace. And they offer everything from loose gems and fine jewelry to engagement and bridal fashions, and they're all offered in 14 karat white, yellow, and rose gold, and available in both classic and fancier shapes. So everything from your traditional round, square, cushion cut, and princess cuts to heart shapes and even their own vintage-inspired rose cut. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my incredible Moissanite solitaire earrings. Like all of Charles and Colbert's jewelry, their earrings are double refractive so that they are more sparkling and more brilliant than any other pair of earrings I have ever owned. And the compliments just won't stop coming. I love these earrings. And lots of other people do too, with Charles and Colbert products being seen in Refinery29, Pop Sugar, How They Asked, She Finds, Town and & Country, and Bridal Guide. Learn more and get 20% off with our special listener offer at charlesandcolvert.com slash artcurious. Again, that's charlesandcolvert, C-O-L-V-A-R-D.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. May 29, 1606 proved to be a turning point in the life of Caravaggio. On that day, he met a temperamental man by the name of Ranuccio Tomasuni, a nasty piece of work practically as well known for street brawling as Caravaggio himself, and rumored in some places to make his living as a pimp. To make matters worse, Tomasoni had strong familial connections to some powerful gangs in the city. And yes, 17th century Rome was rife with gang warfare. So things weren't looking great to begin with. The meeting between Caravaggio and Tomasoni was allegedly meant to settle a wager on a tennis match. The original story goes that Caravaggio lashed out after this tennis match and killed Tomasoni in a fit of rage. So like poor sportsmanship taken to the utter extreme. However, it turns out that this might be a totally incorrect explanation for the events that unraveled that day. So, quick backstory. The primary source for the traditional tale of Caravaggio's descent into murderous rage comes from a single man, a fellow painter turned art historian named Giovanni Baglioni. And who was Baglioni's sworn enemy? One guess. Caravaggio. So this strange tale of tennis gone wrong must be read with this important detail in mind. And what's more, in recent decades, new archival discoveries have shed light on this event, transforming it into a slightly different story of honor and redemption. Maurizio Marini, a leading art historian and one of the world's experts on Caravaggio, believes that Caravaggio and Tomassoni were probably friends, 
or at least acquaintances, who at some point had an argument that must have set off a deadly chain of events. Sure, a tennis match may have been involved, this part may actually have been true, but Marini believes that the match was actually a precursor to a good old-fashioned duel. But just what the duel was over and why death was the ultimate goal of this argument is up for interpretation. Marini might have an answer to the questions, though, and it comes with the help of another art historian, a Vatican scholar named Monsignor Sandro Corradini. Corradini examined the surviving historical documents that recorded the details of Tomassoni's fatal injuries, as written by a barber-slash-surgeon who examined his corpse. The document, Corradini notes, concludes that Tomassoni bled to death through the femoral artery in his groin, having been floored during the duel. From this evidence, Corradini believes that Caravaggio must have pinned Tomassoni to the ground and then made a rather clumsy attempt to castrate him. A swashbuckler Caravaggio was not, Tomassoni most likely moved just as Caravaggio stabbed him, and instead of being castrated, his femoral artery was severed, and so Tomassoni died quickly after. Now, the reasons for the conclusion of castration are based not only on the position of Tomassoni's wound, but also based on Roman street fighting tradition. So believe it or not, the location of wounds in Roman duels had specific meanings, usually based on location as a sign of a wrongdoer's deeds and punishment, as well as a nice severe warning to other potential wrongdoers. For example, if a man insulted another man's reputation, he might have his face cut in a duel. But if a man insulted or assaulted a man's lover or wife, he would get his penis cut off. Given this tradition, it seems that Caravaggio may not have just lashed out after a game of tennis gone poorly, but that he was avenging the honor of a woman in his life in a way that was utterly in keeping with the culture of his day. So who was this woman that caught such tension between Tomassoni and Caravaggio? Marini has a theory. He believes this woman to be Filide Melandroni, a sex worker involved with both men. Caravaggio met Melandroni when he was commissioned to paint a portrait of her for one of her other clients, an Italian nobleman. Portrait of a Courtesan, also known as Portrait of Philidae, now sadly destroyed, is a soft, sensual, and beautiful portrait created with care, with Philidae's dark hair piled luxuriously upon her head and her hands holding a small bouquet of flowers to her breast. She's lovely, and she was apparently one of the most popular and successful courtesans of all of Rome. So it's not difficult to imagine that Caravaggio may have fallen for her charms, as so many others did. In fact, he was so taken with Melandroni that he used her as a model for numerous saintly women in his paintings, including but not limited to St. Catherine, Mary Magdalene, and Judith, the Old Testament heroine who beheaded the dreaded Assyrian general Holofernes. Caravaggio using a sex worker as a model wasn't new or shocking because lots of people did it, and Caravaggio had obviously done it before and would do it again, as with his famous painting, The Death of the Virgin. But his relationship, possibly more than platonic, with Felide Melandroni may have been an especially fraught one, because Tomassoni may not have been her lover, too, but chances are good that he was also her pimp. Would Caravaggio and Tomassoni fight over the affections of a woman whose job it is to sleep with others? It kinda comes with the territory, so I'm not quite sure on that. But art historian Andrew Graham Dixon has an alternative theory as to the identification of Caravaggio's mystery woman that makes a little more sense and that connects more closely to both the artist and to Tomassoni. 
In his BBC documentary, Who Killed Caravaggio? Graham Dixon presents archival evidence that both men had supporters who attended to them during their duel, which was another fighting tradition. But the identities of Tomasini's supporters is interesting. He chose to bring along his brother, as well as his two brothers-in-law, his wife's brothers, as his seconds. Now, this was curious to Andrew Graham Dixon, who questioned why Tomasoni's wife's family would be present at a duel regarding a sex worker, when he could have easily just shown any other man to back him up. Friends, other pimps, so forth. For Andrew Graham Dixon, this brought the Felide Melandroni theory into question, as well as the whole reason for the duel. What if it wasn't just about avenging the honor of one woman, but the honor of an entire family instead? Could Caravaggio have been sleeping with Tomasoni's wife? And could Tomasoni's family be seeking vengeance? Andrew Graham Dixon certainly thinks that this is so. And he even theorizes that Tomasoni's wife actually gave birth later to Caravaggio's love child. But naturally, this is all speculation, so we can never know for sure. But what we do know is what happened after. Caravaggio fled Rome almost immediately after the duel, condemned as an outlaw by Pope Paul V himself, who issued something called a Bando Capitale sentence against the artist, which effectively granted permission to anyone within any papal territory to kill Caravaggio. Upon presenting his severed head to the Pope as proof of the artist's execution, a tidy reward would certainly have been waiting. So with who knows how many self-assigned foot soldiers on his tail, Caravaggio escaped possibly to Florence and Modena, before ensconcing himself in Naples, where he lived for nine months before moving on to the island of Malta, just south of Sicily and to the southwest of Italy's boot. Like many a detail in Caravaggio's life story, the exact reasons for the move to Malta aren't totally known, though some have theorized that he probably hoped to gain admission to the military order of the Knights of Malta, officially known as the Sovereign Military Hospitaller Order of St. John of Jerusalem. Boy, that's a mouthful. Malta was ruled and protected by this famous military order, and thus his acceptance into the order in 1608 may have, in his mind, provided ample protection from his enemies. A related tangent here. Records exist to show that Caravaggio essentially bought his way into the Knights of Malta via the presentation of a work of art. His painting, The Beheading of St. John the Baptist, which is found today in Valletta, the capital of Malta. Now, this image isn't quite as frightening at first glance as Caravaggio's Judith beheading Holofernes, for example, but it's pretty shocking upon closer look. The executioner has been cutting John's throat with a sword, but he then reaches behind his back to pull out a sharp, short dagger from its sheath, letting us know that John is not yet dead and that his decapitation is not due to be swift, but instead slow, sawing, and thus extraordinarily painful. And in the single instance of it in his entire career, the blood pooling from John's wounds drips down to form the artist's signature. It is the only work Caravaggio is ever known to have signed. Some have thus noted that there's a personal significance to this painting, and that its delivery to the Knights of Malta could have been a sign of gratitude for salvation from what Caravaggio must have seen as a similar fate. Getting the backing of the Knights of Malta was a good plan in theory. But of course, just because Caravaggio moved up and on to Malta doesn't mean that he wasn't the same violent person he had always been. 
and only months after his induction into the knighthood, he found himself in prison for assault, injuring none other than a fellow knight. Naturally, this whole incident didn't go over well with the Knights of Malta, who expelled him from their order due to his, quote, foul and rotten countenance, unquote. And thus, Caravaggio made another set of enemies, and when he escaped from prison in Malta, and yep, he really did make a break for it, he then continued his hectic existence of hopping from place to place to seek refuge, but still painting all the while wherever he landed for any period of time. If the facts regarding Caravaggio's time in Malta are scant, the final year and a half of his life are really muddled by time. What we do know is that he jumped around to Sicily and back to Naples again until the summer of 1610, when Caravaggio died at the age of 38. But what exactly led to his death has long been a question that has confounded us. Some have noted that he died of a fever, or possibly malaria, syphilis, or some other illness. But still, the threat of violence has long hung over the tale of his death. Did one of Caravaggio's many foes catch up to him and kill him? Since no records survive really regarding his death, it's been difficult to say, and most historians have claimed illness, as stated previously, as the main culprit of his demise. But two discoveries in the past 10 years have thrown new light onto this old mystery. In 2010, a group of Italian scientists announced that they believe they had located the bones of Caravaggio, which were long lost and fought for many years to have been abandoned and even dumped into the ocean. After following a document trail that led them to a cemetery in the city of Porto Ercole, the group found a set of bones that, with DNA extraction and carbon dating, was a close enough match to the artist's known details of height and weight that the scientists declared their identification as 85% certain, which, you know, is a solid B average. But it's all we've got so far, so I am willing to roll with it. One of the other interesting things discovered in that 2010 analysis was that the probable bones of Caravaggio contained high levels of lead, which is a wonderful identifier of artists throughout time and, you know, before health warnings and all that. Because Caravaggio, like many other artists before and after him, used lead-based paints and probably wasn't too careful with his pigments or his brushes, and that could lead to a little thing called lead poisoning. In some cases, like in that of Vincent van Gogh, Lead poisoning could lead to madness, which could explain any number of Caravaggio's erratic outbursts. But in other extreme situations, lead poisoning can lead directly to death. And so the scientists determined that lead poisoning, perhaps in conjunction with other elements such as infections or sunstroke, was most likely what led to the artist's demise. It's an artsy kind of death at least, given that direct connection to the artist's profession, but if true, it's kind of a sad and bland end to an otherwise epic life. So, you know, meh. Which is why a new report from just last year, as of the release of this episode, so 2018, is so fascinating. That year, a team of seven scientists affiliated with the Mediterranean University Hospital of Marseille analyzed, and I quote, the blood-filled vessel dental pulp of Caravaggio's molars through a combination of DNA detection and protein sampling." Unquote. Their goal? To get down to the nitty-gritty on all of these rumors surrounding Caravaggio's death. 
So they tested the dental pulp for evidence of three diseases or infections, syphilis, malaria, and brucellosis, which is an infection also briefly mentioned as a possible cause of the artist's death and one that we mentioned briefly earlier in episode 47 of this show. But the tests showed no evidence of any of these illnesses. What they did find, though, was curious. It was proof that Caravaggio died of sepsis, or blood infection, that was triggered by golden staph, a common bacterium found on people and tolerated in small doses, but one that can lead to serious illness or even death if not treated. What's so interesting about this conclusion is that it lines up with the long-suspected theory that Caravaggio died from an attack on his life. Scholar Andrew Graham Dixon has claimed that years of painstaking research has led him to reconsider an incident in Caravaggio's late life during his final days in Naples. There, Graham Dixon believes that the artist was attacked by none other than the same night that Caravaggio had maimed in Malta, with the knight possibly seeking vengeance for his assault. Caravaggio was badly, badly injured with several sword slashes, according to Graham Dixon. And while it is a possible miracle that the artist walked away without being killed, it looks like it was only a matter of time before the Reaper ended up coming after him. On his way back to Rome, possibly to seek penance for his crime of murdering Ranuccio Tomassoni, Caravaggio succumbed to a staph infection from his attack and died, finally buried in Porto Ercole. It still all may be speculation, but it is speculation brought on by scientific study and the best possible reading of an enigmatic artist's life. And so that's pretty great. And in a dark way, it's a wonderful natural mirror to Caravaggio's own deeds. A man who was a murderer who may have himself been killed in yet another bloody altercation. The end here would be strangely fitting an epic end to an epic life. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional research help by Raven Todd Da Silva. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Caroline Holler. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. And additional editing help is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among artists in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We're a fully independent podcast, and so we rely on sponsors and donations to keep us going. So if you enjoy the show and have the means, please consider donating to our show to help us out, and thank you for your kindness. You can help our show as well by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and does help new listeners to tune in. For more details about our show, including any images mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. 
We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the true crime realm of art history.